It is my great delight to be able to introduce the next speaker. The Reverend Dr. Andrea White is prof Associate Professor of Theology and Culture at Union Theological Seminary in New York. She uh, did her dissertation on Bart and Ricoeur, on the problem of otherness uh, in, in the thought of both. And she's bringing that uh, work into print under the title, The Back of God, A Theology of Otherness in Karl Barth and Paul Ricoeur. She's also working on a second man manuscript, The Scandal of Flesh, Black Women's Bodies and God Politics, which will be published by Palgrave Macmillan. Uh, it, is, it is great to see you and to welcome you to our podium. Please join me in welcoming Andrea. In my world, there are two impossible possibilities, God and a Bardian womanist. In the 1990 20th anniversary edition of James Cone's Black Theology of Liberation, Robert McAfee Brown offers a critical essay in which Brown celebrates Cone's willingness to critique his own work. Summarizing his points, he writes, Cone's self-critique cites four shortcomings. One, a failure to take issues of sexism seriously enough. Two, a failure to incorporate a global analysis of oppression. Three, <coughs> the absence of a class analysis of oppression. And four, my personal favorite, too great a tendency to rely on the neo-orthodoxy of Karl Barth. <laughs> on this account, the future of liberation theology, according to Cohn, would require that liberationists abandon Barth. Cohn would hold fast to the claim that God is black and that this proclamation is made without Barth's totaliter aliter. Cone would insist that black liberation theology refuse any suggestion that Bart serves as a theological legitimation of the black theology project. In certain liberationist circles, especially womanist ones, some of us need to explain why we are reading Bart at all. Undoubtedly, in the decades after Bart's death, Bart's studies has made a strong case for the eclectic expansiveness and the fecundity of his thought. There are wide-ranging studies of Bart and fill-in-the-blank, from Bart and Marxism to Bart and evangelicalism, Bart and liberalism to Bart and postmodernism, Bart and political theology, Bart and critical theory. Why not Bart and liberation theology? Or is the more responsible way to read Bart together with black liberation theology simply to offer an account of how Cone reportedly worked himself further and further away from his 1965 dissertation on Bart? Womanist theology would make a particularly good candidate for demonstrating how black liberation theology has moved away from Bart. As I always like to say, Bart is not my go-to guy on matters of race and gender. Why then Bart and the future of liberation theology? How do we read our conference theme and avoid the implication that the future of liberation theology is at risk or called into question and that its survival somehow rests with Karl Barth? or that Bart functions as a corrective to liberation theology. And I know that Paul and Kate had none of these implications in mind when framing the theme. Should we not instead be asking about liberation theology and the future of Bart? Should we not be considering how liberation theology might provide the measure for the continuing relevance of Bart studies? We have been asked to consider the way Bart's work might bear on emerging issues in liberation theology. And such a task hinges on precisely how we read Bart. I suggest that we continue with the recent movement to revolutionize the way we read Bart. And I want to thank Kate and Paul, among others, for their contribution in this regard. But it remains an open question 
whether the task of black liberationist and womanist theology includes schooling so-called traditional theologies in their lacunas and blind spots. If there is any family resemblance between BART and liberation theology that suggests a hermeneutical communion of saints, I would suggest womanist theology and BART are not so much estranged family members, but would better be characterized as a hermeneutic communion of mutually suspicious strangers. <laughs> Nevertheless, the relation between BART and liberation theology is worthy of consideration if for no other reason than the simple fact that the Bart-Cohn relation is a persistent question and by no means settled. But more importantly, the matter of revelation is at stake. More than one scholar has placed Bart in conversation with liberation theology, Paul Jones, J. Cameron Carter, George Hunsinger, just for starters. In his essay on Bart and the liberation theology of Gutierrez, Hunsinger says this in a footnote. I take Bart's use of political criteria for evaluating theology throughout his career to be by this time an established fact. The unity, not identity, which he saw between theology and ethics implied, among other things, that it was illegitimate to place theological and political criteria in fundamental opposition. It was precisely because the word of God as the central criterion was concrete that political criteria were necessary. Failures in political judgment were characteristically traced by Bart as being related to failures in theological judgment." End quote. In this 1983 essay, Hunsinger takes it for granted that theology and the political are intimately related. Bart traces a trajectory from failures in political judgment to failures in theological judgment. So an obvious starting point for discussion of Bart and liberation theology would certainly have something to say about Bart and Cohn. J. Cameron Carter reads Cohn's black theology as a religious critique of culture. Reading Carter very closely, he explains that Cohn is concerned about the problem of abstraction in theology. According to Carter, white theology is an abstract mode of thought. Cohn's theology is Bardian because he wants to speak about the qualitative distinction that is Jesus Christ, who stands over and against a false reality. But he modifies Bart in an important way. Indeed, Cohn affirms Christ's qualitative difference from nation, color, and race, but he presses beyond Bart to affirm that God can nevertheless be related to these sites of identity. Still paraphrasing Carter, Cohn's Bartian move is to bind black theology and black power through the Christian experience of revelation in Jesus Christ. Cohn's Bardian critique is the critique of white theology and its fallacy about reason. When it comes to the knowledge of God, reason is wrong to equate God and the human thought of God. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God to the creature. Jesus Christ reveals what it means to be a creature, a human being. Apart from Christ, human persons have no knowledge of their true being. But, Carter says, Cohn improvises in light of Bart. The revelation of God in Jesus Christ is not just a claim about human existence, but also about God and history. Quoting him, because God participates in the historical liberation of humanity, we can speak of God only in relationship to human history. Here, Cohn approaches the theme of human liberation from the vantage point of the broader theme of the relationship between God and human history. The only way to speak of God is in relationship to human history. So Carter calls this Cohn's Bartianism beyond Bart. Bart's theological transcendence makes it difficult to understand the relationship between God and creation, between the transcendent person of Christ and black persons, Bart is unable to approach the truth of creation from the side of the creature. So arguably, Carter says, there lurks an unintended abstraction in Bart's thought. 
As another example, I briefly addressed this Bart Cohn relation when I wrote a piece for the Christian Century just one week after Jim Cohn's death, and I will take the liberty of quoting myself. Debates about Cohn's work often grapple with his relationship to the work of Karl Barth, but Cohn never set out to baptize Barth in liberation theology, and neither did he engage in the foundationalist need to legitimize liberation theology with orthodoxy. Cohn's reading of the gospel was always distinctly his own. More to the point, Cohn never wavered in his commitment to divine freedom. What is at stake is not his relation to Bart, but his commitment to the message that God sets the black captives free. Rereading Christianity through the lens of blackness and freedom makes Christianity more Christian because it is more free, more radically theological. Black subjectivity, as Victor Anderson once argued, is not reducible to ontological blackness where blackness stands for suffering and resistance. Cone's black subjectivity is grounded on freedom and hope. Cone's freedom is not Bardian, it is black. In 1981, Cone wrote in the Christian Century, my black colleagues in National Conference of Black Churchmen and the Society for the Study of Black Religion helped me to realize more clearly that theology is not black merely because of its identification with a general concept of freedom. It is necessary for the language of theology to be derived from the history and culture of black people. The issue is whether black history and culture have anything unique to contribute to the meaning of theology. So wrote Cohn in 1981. Ever avoiding facile oscillation between black suffering and hope or slippage into glib notions of redemptive suffering or talk of theodicy, Cohn offers no justification of God in the face of black suffering. Cohn's indictment is not against God, but against the racist and anti-black forms of Christianity. Cone looks evil in the face, seeing with eyes wide open the grotesque in re-crucified black bodies hanging from poplar trees, locked in cages by the so-called justice system, and lying dead in the streets. What is clear in these initial thoughts that I'm offering is that Cone's entire corpus makes a case for theology's obligation to contend with the question of history. At first glance, this mandate seems antagonistic to Bardian sensibilities that re read Bart's aversion to history. The common charge against Bart for an ahistorical theology is grounded on Bart's efforts to assert the autonomy of revelation. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of the creature are discreetly different. Bruce McCormick makes an interesting observation about this argument for the independence of revelation by demonstrating that it follows from a tradition established by Schleiermacher. Barth's claim for the independence of revelation was not a novel idea or unique maneuver on Barth's part, but actually derived from a tradition that sought to establish religion as its own discourse and discipline independent of metaphysics and ethics. In this regard, McCormick suggests, rather than identifying Bart as a precursor to the anti-foundationalism of postmodern religious thought that followed him in the 20th century, it is more instructive to read Bart as a 19th century theologian. Bart belonged to the tradition that had as one of its themes the independence of religion. Beginning with the Kantian restriction on the knowability of God and all the way to Schleiermacher, Bart was tackling an old problem in modernity regarding epistemological access to God. Bart's response to the problem was to assert that if the unintuitable God is to be known, God must make God's self to be intuitable, but in such a way that the unintuitability proper to God is not set aside. So McCormick tells us Bart's theology is not then ahistorical, but rather may be understood as an attempt to relate revelation in history that preserves divine inscrutability. The resurrection event, as such, is an event 
a revelation. It is not ahistorical, but unhistorical. The resurrection is an act of God, but as an act of God, it is unintuitable. The resurrection has no extension in history. It is for this reason that we understand the Christ event only as problem or myth. The resurrection is unintuitable in itself, but illuminates the event of the cross. McCormick writes, the unintuitable God is revealed to faith through the medium of an intuitable event, and knowledge of God is realized. The problem, as McCormick points out, is that divine reality in this case is nothing more than a postulated idea. What Bart does accomplish is to transform the theme of the independence of religion into the independence of revelation. Bart's theology of history remains unhistorical until Bart generates a more fully developed theology of history with the incarnation. In the resurrection event, revelation is without extension on the plane of history, but the incarnation is the unintuitable God fully entering the realm of intuitability. The historical nature of the Christ event means that the event can never be definitely anticipated before the fact. The revelatory event has meaning, but always as unexpected miracle. The life of God has become historical in the event of Christ. Here there is no flight from history. Instead, we find a Bart, in Bart a robust theology of history. As McCormick reads the revelation history relation in Bart, he frames it as an epistemological problem to which Bart is attempting a solution. In light of the Kantian restriction and the philosophical conundrum, the inscrutability of God is preserved. But there are additional implications beyond the epistemological when viewed from a womanist perspective. In light of womanist theology, this revelation history relation is relevant for offering a theological lens through which to view black women's experience. First, a word about where womanist thought has made its arguably most significant mark theologically considered. In its nascent stages, womanist theology contended with traditional atonement theory and expressions of divine sanction for redemptive suffering that perpetuated the notion of violence and suffering in black women's experience as sacramental. Womanist theologians Dolores Williams and Joanne Marie Terrell reject theologies of the cross that serve to justify both coerced and uncoerced roles of surrogacy, sacrifice, and suffering by black women. Williams' response is her critique against black theology for moving too quickly to liberation when black women were not seeking liberation as much as striving for mere survival. What is most important to note is that Williams is not offering a revisionist soteriology in her critique of atonement theory. Instead, she is pressing for a strong doctrine of providence. The revelation history relation must say something about the divine human encounter and God's providential care for black women's wilderness experience. In her reading of the Hagar narrative, Williams points out the troubling fact that Hagar is sent back to her master after her escape. She is not liberated, but her transformation comes from encountering God in the wilderness. Bart's theology of history is not a philosophical conundrum or an epistemological crisis. His theology of history that demonstrates the concrete rea historical reality of revelation and also preserves the autonomy of revelation is indeed a doctrine of providence. The incarnation is an expression of God's election made manifest in history. So one way to evaluate Bart's theology of history is to understand that his aversion to historicism does not entail utter disregard for history. In Thomas Ogletree's 1965 work on Bart and Trelsch, he writes, Christian faith is grounded in acts of God accomplished in history. Ogletree demonstrates how Bart would find no problem with this claim. Christian faith at its center concerns history. For Bart, theological thinking is a kind of historical thinking. 
where whenever we seek to encompass Christianity within a general historical understanding, we bind it to this passing transient world. We deny its eternity. We prophesy its coming death, quoting Ogletree. But when Christianity relates itself to history, it does so as the turning point of all history. Bart calls for a radical separation between Christianity and the time-bound flux of history. Bart asserts the relative, transient, passing character of all history. Bart undercuts all attempts to attribute final meaning to anything historical. We find all of this in early Bart in Romans. Bart writes there, history has to forfeit its excellence and serious importance for history is ultimately meaningless. By its whole course, history pronounces an indictment against itself. The relation between time and eternity can be actualized only from beyond the relative as something extrinsic to it. But it can be understood only in view of revelation. A womanist scholar might be deeply dissatisfied with this view of revelation as extrinsic to history. Nevertheless, I won't jump ship just yet. I wish to suggest another rationale for why we are having this conversation at all, and perhaps defensively explain to my womanist colleagues why I read Bart. I'm compelled by his ideology critique, a critique that speaks to the not-so-idiosyncratic way in which race and religion are entangled in the U.S. context. In her book, Stand Your Ground, womanist scholar Kelly Brown Douglas discusses how U.S. democracy is contingent on religious legitimation of the Anglo-Saxon myth of American exceptionalism and its unspoken subaltern contract. America's purpose is quite explicitly a divine purpose. European Americans were chosen by God. Through her geneolo genealogical account of race, it is not difficult to see how both race and religion, whiteness and Christianity are defining pieces of US identity and mission. But it does not take a womanist theologian to see that of all forms of legitimation, religion is considered the most prominent. As historian Martin Marty puts it, Americans make a liturgy out of their history. The American story is an historical divine incarnation about racial religious synchronicity that suggests a kind of mystical unity between Anglo-Saxon people and God. Anglo-Saxons are a peculiar people descended from God and blacks could be made white as snow by accepting Christ. Whiteness functions as a passport Entrance to the kingdom is guarded by whiteness. As legal scholar Michelle Alexander puts it, white supremacy becomes a religion. Anglo-Saxons with divinity running through their veins are as close a human manifestation of God on earth as one could get. To be against Anglo-Saxon America is to be against God. Whiteness is cherished property and sacred property, the gateway to divinity, the key to salvation. So it turns out the construction of whiteness is theologically consequential. What whiteness opposes, God opposes. Therefore, blackness is sin. Anglo-Saxons are essentially human incarnations of divine reality granted the unspoken right to determine what is and is not acceptable to God. They are granted the ultimate right, the right to name God. In this empire, the free black body is an ontological danger to social order. This account is unmistakably a political theology, and a political theological response requires, among other things, a politics of hope. But in the Afro-pessimism of Calvin Warren, politics of hope is not a way out, but another way under. That is another act of violence against black bodies. For a politics of hope is hope in historical progress that strives for the impossible object of a political fantasy. The 
politics of hope is a cruel optimism for blacks who are rendered dupes in a social order where promises of freedom and justice are always beyond reach. A politics of hope escapes temporality and retreats to the not yet. Warren calls this the trick of the indefinite future. To reject the fantastical object of politics is the only so-called hope for blackness in an anti-black world. What we need, he contends, is a death of hope. Hopelessness, or Afro-pessimism, undercuts the inadequacy of political hope in conditions of anti-black violence. In a politics of hope, we have not only the white Western God-man, but a colonizer God. We must lose hope in the efficacy of the political where struggle is presented as a spiritual virtue. Theodicy puts divine justice on trial, but does not address black suffering. So then we are left with the question, what is emancipatory hope in a black liberation theology? How do we hope when living in the reality utterly defined by the deification of anti-blackness? According to Calvin Warren, we see only the failure of social justice and liberation theology to dismantle the structures of anti-black violence. This is not far from a womanist critique of black theology for womanists renounced liberation as an appropriate aim to seek after liberation is to move too far and too quickly away from everyday black women's experience. Sisters in the wilderness are seeking survival, not liberation. Hagar is not liberated. It is notable that the last sentence in Stand Your Ground, Kelly Brown Douglas declares that in the face of black death, she will not be consoled. Certain hopelessness resides in this claim. I want to suggest that reading BART together with liberationists requires that we move in and through the black nihilism of Afro-pessimism. Afro Precisely because of the entanglement of race and religion, as Kelly Brown Douglas describes it, theology must have a word to say to black death, both social death and physical death, death of the spirit and death of the body. We must heed the cry of the dead. We must no longer sacrifice black bodies for the sake of perverted and violent political theologies. Perhaps what is needed is the sacrifice of religion. If liberation theology is about the task of disrupting the status quo, then there is a remarkable methodological resonance with Bart, given the character and task of Bart's theology to question again and again. When it comes to theological claims, there are no definitive proclamations. He says that we have no last word to speak. We can only repeat ourselves. We can only describe Jesus Christ often and in the last resort, infinitely often. We can only speak of the knowledge of God again and again in different variations. Our claims are provisional and rough. As Bart puts it, for this very reason, the reference to Jesus Christ cannot and must not on any account try to have on our side the character of a conclusive word. He says this in 2.1. Insofar as liberation theology is the sacrifice of religion, then the theology of Karl Barth is liberation theology through and through. Theology is ideology critique. It is, as Rowan Williams describes it, a practice of dispossession by which we interrogate our hopes and identities and the strategies we use to bolster and protect them. It is to remain attuned to the questioning heart of faith. It is Bart's insistence that we do not possess God, that theology defies the logic of competition and possession. Bart's ideology critique is well aware of religion's inherent bias in favor of the hegemonic that religion is complicit with imperialism. Theology is provisional, never totalizing, 
As is well known in the opening pages of the church dogmatics, Bart claims the church's task is to speak about God and ought to take on the further task of criticizing and revising its speech about God, asking what Christian utterance can and should say today. Theology is talk about God at the same time that it announces its own inability to speak about God. Bart points to the questioning function of the Christian message. He writes in Romans, the gospel is not a truth among truths, rather it seeks a question mark against all truths. To apprehend its meaning is, to, uh, not, is not to overcome the conflict of religions or philosophies, but to engage in a struggle with existence in self, itself and to engage an unknown God. The assumption that Jesus is the Christ is void of any content that can be comprehended by human persons. God is neither directly communicated nor directly apprehended, and religious experience denies any direct immediacy. Any direct knowledge can only be knowledge of an idol. Religion and the church also do not possess positive content, but are rather tokens and signs that must be understood negatively and are established only insofar as their independent significance diminishes and finally dies. Just as Grunwald depicts the witness of John the Baptist pointing away from himself the significance of religion and the church is indirect. They are not the gate to the realm of God but the signposts. The content of Christianity cannot be possessed or mastered and is so radically unexpected in the light of the world that it can be received and understood only as contradiction. When it is received as such, it becomes a matter of faith. Quoting Bart in Romans, faith is awe in the presence of the divine incognito. It is the love of God that is aware of the qualitative distinction between God and the human person and God and the world. It is the affirmation of resurrection as the turning point of the world. And there it is the affirmation of the divine no in Christ, of the shattering halt in the presence of God. Faith is neither religion nor irreligion, neither sacred nor profane. It is always both together, he says. Beside the invisible possibility of the old and the new, there lies the visible possibility still that human persons may become religious. It is in religion, he says, that human capacity appears most pure, most strong, most penetrating, most adaptable. Religion is the ability of those to receive and to retain an impress of God's revelation. Yet religion is only ever a human possibility that always stands in the shadow of sin and death. Sin is sovereign power, the assumption of independence in which God is forgotten the sophisticated, pretentious, unchildlike wisdom of the serpent that produces an unreal aloofness from God and the supposition that we are capable of undertaking the restoration of our proper position. Death is the supreme law of life, he says, the last and final no. Under sin and death, religion is a concoction that claims to contain or possess or even enjoy God. Its busy concern with concrete things is a revolt against God and inevitably a making of idols. Wherever the qualitative distinction between human persons and God is overlooked or misunderstood. In this sense, the religious demeanor is more open to criticism than any other human demeanor. Sermon making and temple building are inevitably caught up in sin. The worship of God is rightfully held under the greatest suspicion by both God and human persons. God regards it as arrogance, human persons regard it as illusion. Bart writes, God must not be sought as though God sat enthroned upon the summit of religious attainment. It may be, Bart allows, that in religion, humankind reach, reaches its noblest achievements, its highest pinnacle of human possibility. But even so, religion remains a human achievement. 
So far as human possibility is concerned, he says, prophets and priests, theologians and philosophers, persons of faith, hope, and charity break in pieces on the impossibility of God. True to form, what Bart gives with one hand, he takes back with another. Yet precisely there, wherever persons pray and preach, the invisible truth that before God no flesh is righteous becomes visible, and there human persons encounter God. The possibility of religion must be dissolved catastrophically in order that the no of God may be transformed into God's yes. The possibility of religion must be granted and then offered up as a sacrifice. For life is not life, he writes, if it be not life from death, and God is not God if he be not the end of human persons. Religion functions as a sign that must be understood negatively, like the pointing finger of Grunwald's John the Baptist. It is in itself devoid of positive content and is established only insofar as its independent significance diminishes and finally dies. If religion seeks to claim a reality that does not belong to it, religion is disqualified. No human endeavor is open to criticism and is considered more dangerous than religious endeavors in every form, from rationalism to mysticism to nationalism. God treats it all as arrogance and illusion. Yet so too all that opposes religion. Opposition to religion is not suggested as a desirable affirmative alternative. He writes, anti-religious negation has no advantage over the affirmations of religion. To destroy temples is not better than to build them. Religion, nevertheless, has a positive function because the relation with God has its human, historical, subjective side. And in its purest and noblest form, humankind reaches its highest pinnacle of human achievement in religion. Religion is the ability, he writes, of human persons to receive and to retain an impress of God's revelation. It is the capacity to reproduce and give visible expression to the transformation of the old into the new, so that it becomes a conscious human expression and a conscious and creative human activity. Even so, the human expression of religion is not the divine possibility of religion. Religion as human possibility with all its claims to absolute and transcendent truth and every claim to direct relationship with God is a most precarious attempt, Bart writes, to imitate the flight of the bird. The impossibility of God calls into question all seekers of religion. Yet in the human endeavor of religion, nevertheless, the unbreaking of the spirit occurs and humanity encounters God. Wherever persons pray and preach, wherever sacrifice is offered, wherever in the presence of God emotions are stirred and experiences occur, there, yes, precisely there, the trespass abounds. Precisely there, there Bart writes, the invisible truth that before God no flesh is righteous, which may perhaps have remained invisible from Adam to Moses becomes visible. Precisely there, human persons encounter God and there breaks forth the crisis of God, the sickness unto death. The question of God may only be derived from either the criminal arrogance of religion or it must originate and proceed from God. Hence, the importance of religion as human possibility is established and then, in the same breath, offered up as sacrifice. Only after religion is offered up in sacrifice may we begin to contemplate a womanist hermeneutic of revelation, one that takes into account a phenomenology of violence. Susan Thistlethwaite says that violence against women is the largest and longest global war. This claim is not just a matter of identity politics, this is a claim about the lived experience of women's bodies. This is a claim especially about the experience of brown and black women's bodies. Womanist theology is a social change perspective that places the experience of African-American women and women of color at the center of its method 
and it reads race, gender, sex, and class oppression as theological problems. So it grants hermeneutical privilege to brown and black women's experience, and it rejects wholesale any notion of redemptive suffering. The quiet strength of womanist theology is its implicit negation, I'm sorry, negotiation between the so-called merely cultural and the Marxist materialist. The negotiation is an understated, if not wholly unstated, methodological advantage of the womanist project. Not because the achievement of a successfully unsynthesized dialectic arises somehow coincidentally, but because it almost goes without saying. It knows well the phenomenon of the is and isness is, is notness of, uh, of race and gender, sex and class oppression, living beyond the veil of the white supremacist gaze, where on one side of the veil, brown and black women's bodies are culturally constructed artifacts. And on this side of the veil, it knows full well, deep within its womanist bones, the material reality of the fantastic hegemonic imagination that has an all too real material impact on bodies that are raped commodified and lynched. So no, this is not simply an intellectual debate about how to frame theological discourse about revelation and history. The stakes are high. This is a matter of life and death. One of the most insidious expressions of violence against brown and black women's bodies is an irony in the cultural phenomenon that gets expressed as both violent denial of humanity and also normal and mundane, a phenomenon that has become so quotidian, so ordinary, that the material reality of this violent disregard is not taken seriously. It is not an overstatement to say that the normalization of this indifference is the gateway to genocide. The ordinariness of oppressing black bodies is embedded in the cultural fabric and it leads to volatile race relations in the United States and state-sanctioned public lynchings. The violence is everyday, ordinary, normalized, and systemic. One critical theorist points out that the phrase systemic violence may at first sight seem metaphorical and in danger of distracting attention from what we might call real violence, the kind that leaves blood on the floor and blood on someone's hands. Real violence grabs our attention. It does so whether on the street or on the screen. So when we think of it, we're apt to think of the most visible cases of violence. Systemic violence, on the other hand, is not only hard to see, but hard to make sense of. It is because systemic violence is hard to see that it requires a vision of the invisible in what is visible. Systemic violence, by nature, loves to hide. In order to make life palatable, we train ourselves not to see this violence. There is a great deal at stake in not seeing it, not least our sense of ease in the world, our comfort in our own circumstances, in spite of the privileges on which that comfort rests. Revelation, for this reason, is a critical starting point for womanist theology. And there are two reasons, two essential reasons, that I want to highlight. First, the reality of multiple oppressions intersecting on black women's bodies is born of and lives by covert ideological discourse. Human oppression is, of course, quite often unabashedly overt. Examples both extant and throughout history abound. But the insidious effect of covert oppression requires the unveiling of its modes of concealment. The second reason is a corollary to the first. A womanist hermeneutic of revelation must ground the theological project because the reality that God has been revealed to and through black women is itself contested and therefore warrants revelation. Covert ideologies have quite successfully hidden this fact from view. For these reasons, we may say the raison d'etre of womanist theology is the call to reveal to render this fact of covert ideology a revealed reality and to discover what divine revelation has to say about it. Thus, a double revelation is at stake for womanist theology, to reveal oppression and to reveal God. 
with an aim to address the point of intersection between the two, namely black women's experience and divine response. With revelation as a theological starting point, we not only refute idolatry, we reveal it. Acts of divine disclosure reveal God and only God can reveal the human project of concealing God. Racism and sexism and their intersection are theologically relevant because they are expressions of idolatry. Foucault and Fanon and critical theorists can do the work of ideology critique and discourse analysis, but only theology can reveal the depths of the human endeavor to assert the human in the place of God. As theological problems, they require theological intervention. All the while, the theological intervention is itself a political practice because theology is always already political. A womanist hermeneutic of revelation insists that we take the everyday experience of black women seriously in light of revelation and not in spite of it. In other words, it resists the tendency to generalize revelation in a way that it never touches the ground. Revelation is not theoretical. Revelation conjures abstract notions of a transcendent God that is aloof, but the transcendence of God that presses the creator-creature distinction is what makes God's relation to us more intimate. The level of God's intimacy with us is only divine possibility and not a human one. The project of revealing oppression is theological, for it is theology's task to identify evils in their multiple forms. Theoretical analysis can do this work, not to usurp the voice of black women's experience, but precisely the opposite, to give voice to the unrecognized evils. So the problem of revelation and experience is not a theoretical one that belongs only to the sphere of doctrines, but has practical consequences. The process of revealing oppressions belongs to the womanist agenda, both to lay bare the reality of these evils and idolatry, and to reveal what God does to overcome them, or to God's response to these evils as idolatrous. How does revelation help us from lapsing again into imperialistic adventures? Revelation understood as God's self-disclosure is meant to unveil God where God is otherwise hidden. Such unveiling also discloses idolatry, apotheosis, imperialism, and the fantastic hegemonic imagination. The notion that God is related to history is unsettling. How is God not defiled by all the grit of human existence? Of course, the Christian narrative centers on the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection as the outcome of this unsettling encounter of time and eternity. Revelation is anchored in an historical event. As H. Richard Niebuhr puts it, we are in history as fish in water. But revelation cannot mean history if it also means God, for what we see in history is finiteness, caprice, arbitrariness, and brutality. Ultimately, revelation is not about how we should find our way to God. Revelation is always about how God has sought and found a way to us. Revelation speaks to history, yet points to the event of God claiming partnership with us. Revelation is a revolutionary event that sets a question mark upon all human events. Indeed, revelation establishes the discontinuity between the event of Christ and the events of history. The discontinuity disturbs our rationalistic sensibilities but the mistake is in perceiving the paradox of revelation in history as entailing no real relation between them at all. To say that the revelation of God is miracle is also to say that God's self-disclosure in history is to establish partnership with humanity. From a womanist perspective, discontinuity is precisely the point for the revelatory event is a rupture of the status quo. The world as we know it is not sufficient unto itself. The exclusion and occlusion of black women's bodies is the very reason why we must be receptive to something radically transcendent. Womanist theology helps us move away from the epistemological questions of cognitive assertions, I'm sorry, cognitive assent to objects of knowledge 
and enlivens instead the relational embodied element of faith, faith in a God who self-discloses in history through the Christ event. The Christ event is a kenosis, but not a self-emptying in the sense of self-abnegation, but a kenosis of the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, to use bell hook's phrase, that dehumanizes the exploited, despised poor women of color. Queering the flesh of Christ that Sean Copeland, womanist scholar Sean Copeland, refers to is the subversion of how we normally conceive the anthropocentric and masculinist ways of being human. Turning the subject responds concretely to the dangerous memory of the body broken and poured out for us all. By attending to a new subject, we commit ourselves to a praxis of solidarity, she tells us, for human liberation and make the mystical body of Christ publicly visible in our situation. Revelation is the mighty act of God's encounter with humanity in the Christ event. It is also the way in which these events continue to give meaning to our historical present. God's self-disclosure is not temporally confined. In black women's religious experience, we find the marks of God's working in history. The Christian community must turn to the recognition of God's providential encounter with Hagar in the wilderness. For divine revelation is powerful enough to penetrate forces of evil and to have a word to speak, even to abandon despised and dead black bodies. For as womanist Sean Copeland says, when we do violence to black women's subjectivity, we betray not only the humanity of black women, not only the humanity of human beings in general, but we betray the humanity of God. If by liberation theology, we mean failures in political judgment are related to failures in theological judgment, that theology is obligated to contend with history, that divine freedom entails an indictment against anti-blackness, that divine providence is a claim about Hagar's encounter with God in the wilderness, that the American empire is a case study for the necessity of ideology critique, and that religion must then be offered up in sacrifice, that there is such a thing as a womanist hermeneutic of revelation. If all of these belong to the project of liberation theology, then maybe, just maybe, there is hope for the impossible possibility of a Bardian womanist. <laughs> Thank you.